From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The state snubbed the federal government when it legalized pot. More recently, Denver decriminalized magic mushrooms, which are against federal law. And there's talk of opening the country's first safe injection site for IV drug users. So how does the long arm of the federal law here, U.S. Attorney Jason Dunn, navigate all this? How does he decide whom to prosecute and whom to leave be? We'll ask. Then, in 40 years, a record store is bound to see some strange stuff come through. For Wax Tracks, some of the strangest was of their own making. You had a record label, Wax Tracks did at the time. Well, this was the first record that we ever put out. So it was an experiment that uh, went awry many times. (laughs) Bird brain runs the world. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado might look like the wild, wild west in the eyes of the federal government. Legal weed is just one example. The drug, of course, is still a no-no federally. Then came the idea to open the country's first safe injection site for IV drug users in Denver. That's been scuttled for now. And, of course, the Mile High City recently decriminalized psychedelic mushrooms. The man chosen by President Trump to tame this lawless land is Colorado's U.S. Attorney Jason Dunn. Jason, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. How do you walk the line between adhering to federal law, which places marijuana alongside heroin, and Coloradans' decision to legalize and maybe put another way? What are your enforcement priorities when it comes to marijuana? Sure. Well, as you know, under federal law, marijuana is a controlled substance, and it's illegal, period. Um, That said, our job is to figure out what we can do to most impact public safety. And so when we prioritize our criminal enforcement efforts, we think about what impacts public safety the most and where we can use our resources. And that's true for the Drug Enforcement Administration as well here in Colorado. Okay. So where is public safety most affected, do you think? Yeah. So our priorities are, and this is true across the country uh, for the entire Department of Justice, number one is national security and terrorism. That's always job one post 9-11. But second, um, we are focused on violent crime, um, and I can go into lengths about some of the things we're doing on that. But then um, uh, illicit drugs is, is, is second, and that includes um, going after large drug trafficking organizations that are bringing large quantities of methamphetamine and heroin into, into Colorado and through Colorado. Um, uh, opioids, opioids gets a lot of attention lately, and rightly so. That's a huge um, problem. Um, and then, and then third really is, as you've seen recently, is, is black market marijuana. Um, that's a huge problem in Colorado as well. So we're focused on that. Okay. So in April, in an interview with the Colorado Sun, you said the size and scope of the marijuana black market in Colorado was stunning to you. Help us understand what stunned you. Yeah. Well, the size is, as you said, the, you know, the retail market in Colorado, as I understand it, is, is something like a billion and a half dollars a year. Um, you know, I've been told anecdotally by the DEA that the black market, and that's that's, and just to be clear, that's marijuana that's being produced illegally under federal or state law, and that's being uh, almost exclusively produced for out-of-state shipment, and and the DEA is finding it virtually in every state in the country, um, and and they anticipate, they think that it may be a larger industry in Colorado than the retail industry, and these are almost all primarily home grows. We um, held a press conference. Um, 
recently where we announced the, the results of a two-year investigation in which we um, executed search warrants on approximately 250 homes that were being used to grow you know, four or 500 all the way up to 1,000 plants uh, in the basement with, no, in most cases, nobody living there. These were homes where in Colorado? All over from, from Colorado Springs, Pueblo, all the way up to, to Greeley, but primarily concentrated in the metro area. And these are not homes that are run down, abandoned homes. The, you know, the average value of the homes that we actually um, filed forfeiture actions on was about $400,000. These are homes that, um, you know, that are in, in suburban working class neighborhoods. Um, the lawns are maintained. Um, they don't look like drug houses, but they are. Who's behind these grows? Yeah, so we're working on that. It's a complex um, analysis, and, and it's it's a it's an investigation that I can't go into a lot of detail on. But um, we think there there may be some connection among them. And I'm talking these are you know hundreds of homes, um, but we're still working on that and trying to figure out what the connection is. But you know it's it's a complicated effort. It may involve um, you know uh, the dark web and cryptocurrency. So we're investigating all of that. Do you think that there are foreign actors involved in this? Um, there are certainly, as our arrests that were disclosed showed, there are people who are of foreign nationality. Primarily in, the, in, in that and in, in those arrests were primarily Chinese. Chinese. And what do you think this would be funding? You know, that's what we're trying to figure out. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's got to be a huge amount of cash. Um, I was trying to crunch the numbers just on what one house can generate in cash, and, and, and it could be upwards of a couple million dollars a year, and it's a cash business. So that money has to be flowing somewhere. How do you know that marijuana makes it out of Colorado? You say that this black market is primarily serving other places. How do you know that? Yeah, that's what the DEA tells us, that it, when they um, you know, have um, seizures in other states and they um, talk to the people that they're catching, um, they're asking them where they, they, they got this 50 or 100 pounds of marijuana, and, and, and a lot of reports are coming back that it's coming from Colorado. Okay, if marijuana business people, legit ones, are listening – from dispensary owners to, you know, there are payroll firms that work with, with the cannabis industry. Uh, and frankly, if marijuana users are listening, how do they stay right by your office? Well, um, there is no right by our office. Marijuana is illegal under federal law. Um, but, you know, as I said, we have to make enforcement decisions and, and, and make priorities. And so um, we monitor closely what the state is doing through the Marijuana Enforcement Division to ensure that um, they're doing what um, they're required to do under state law from an enforcement perspective. That helps us um, be, I guess, more comfortable that there's a robust regulatory scheme and that the state is a good partner in enforcing um, marijuana laws under state law. Is this state a good partner? Is the state doing a good job policing this? Do you, you know, I think Colorado, because it was such an early um, actor in adopting um, legalization, has a more robust system than many states. Um, and I know the folks over at the, the Marijuana Enforcement Division, they're working very hard. And I know under some current legislation, I think they're going to expand the number of people they have. I think they could always be doing more. Um, I mean, it occurs to me that if you think the black market is, as you have said, stunning, that Colorado, in your mind, is falling short to some degree. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the Marijuana Enforcement Division has its hands full with regulating the the, the regulated market. Uh -huh. um, I certainly would like to see the state do more to go after the black market. I know I've talked to local law enforcement, sheriffs, police chiefs who have said, we know where lots of illegal grows are. We just can't get to them all. 
A little background. You've been in this job for about eight months. Uh, That is the job of U.S. attorney in Colorado. You're a native who attended CU, worked at the big Denver law firm Brownstein Hyatt at the state attorney general's office. Uh, Jason Dunn, have you always been a law and order guy? What what did the younger Jason Dunn (laughs) make of things like, you know, the the push to legalize marijuana? Yeah. Yeah. you know, I don't know. I was um, I was probably a typical teenager. I'm not sure I would have thought at that time I'd have wound up in, in law enforcement. Um, but, you know, I have a, a real love for Colorado. Um, I left the state twice when my dad became a school superintendent in Montana and came right back for undergrad. And then after college, I lived on the East Coast for three years and quickly came back to Colorado. So I'm just most interested in making sure that Colorado is a great place for people to live and raise a family. Do you respect its decision to legalize marijuana? You know, I'm a state's rights guy. um, And I think we have sort of an intractable problem between federal law and state law that needs to be resolved. Um, You put that uh, onus on Congress, I gather. I do. Yeah, I think we've got to resolve it. It, We cannot have a situation where um, the federal government is saying we won't enforce federal law for one reason or another. So we need resolution. Okay. I'm Ryan Warner, and our guest is U.S. Attorney for Colorado, Jason Dunn. He was nominated by President Trump, confirmed by the Senate less than a year ago. Uh, And in May, Jason, Denver voters decriminalized so-called magic mushrooms, making psychedelic shrooms a low law enforcement priority for people 21 and over. Proponents say they can relieve depression and anxiety. Again, the clash here of local and federal law. Is this on your office's radar? Like when the vote came through, did it uh, not really. I mean, one correction, you know, the, the, it wasn't decriminalized. It was more what you said, which was they, they instructed um, Denver police to make it the you know, low priority. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still illegal even under, under state or city law. Um, but from our perspective, um, it is, you know, I, I, I'm not sure in recent, we even have a mushroom case in recent memory. I'd have to ask at the office, but it's certainly not something that has been a, uh, it's not a heavily high, trafficked correct. drug. Correct. Okay. Helpful to understand. Uh, let's talk about the possibility of a supervised injection site. This is where IV drug users could inject in private booths, but near trained professionals uh, that could help if there's an overdose uh, or refer people to treatment. A bill paving the way for such a site in Denver was ejected in the state legislature. Uh, you wrote a letter to the city warning about opening such a location. What was your motivation? Yeah, you know, I went into that issue. Um, it was sort of sprung on us when when city council did what it did. But um, and I went into it with, with a fairly open mind to say, you know, to look at that and think, you know, is this something actually that could have a positive impact? Right. This is um, often referred to as harm reduction. Right. And so they cited, and people cite frequently to a, a site in Vancouver. Um, and so we did. I can't say we spent. Um, weeks looking at it, but we spent a couple of days digging into the issue and looking at it. And in my sort of view on it was that if we were going to um, sort of normalize or authorize um, conduct that is otherwise illegal, we should have a really good reason to do that. We should have demonstrable proof that it that it works and has a dramatic impact on a problem. And I couldn't find that. Um, I don't think it's been successful in Vancouver. Um, I don't think it's a good idea for Denver. In fact, in Vancouver, it arguably increased usage rates around the facility, crime rates around the facility. And so, you know, obviously heroin is a serious narcotic, an illegal drug under under any law. 
And um, in our view, it would only exacerbate the problem. And, and in my, my view is that if we're going to um, do something that arguably normalizes otherwise harmful conduct, we ought to have a really good reason to do it. But if, if someone is injecting in an alleyway with no supervision versus in a facility that has a nurse, isn't there inherent benefit in the latter? There's no question that if somebody overdoses in a facility and, and is hit with Narcan and is saved, that 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 person has been saved. The problem is that people don't just shoot up once a day and they don't do it just in those facilities, right? They will um, do it four or five times a day and they'll do it many times outside that facility. So I'm not sure it even has a a measurable impact on on the death rate. Moreover, I don't think people, you know, um, people who who are... are, who are in an, live in an apartment or doing heroin, um, other places or prescription opioids are not going to be um, driving down to this facility to do it. So you're really just facilitating um, one population. And and second, you're not even, you know, the, 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 the antidote, the Narcan only works on heroin, doesn't work on meth or cocaine or anything else. And all those drugs would arguably be allowable in the facility. In our first half, you brought up uh, opioids. What exactly is your office's role as U.S. attorney in fighting the opioid epidemic? Who are the bad actors that you're looking at? Yeah, so we're addressing that in two ways. One is, of course, we're going after large drug trafficking organizations that are bringing heroin in to the state. Um, And And there's obviously a very strong link between uh, heroin use and opioid use. Absolutely. Prescription opioid use. That's right. I mean, the estimates I've heard is that, you know, 70 to 80% of heroin users started by abusing prescription pills. So we have a focus on that as well. And I'm really proud of one of the things we're doing in our office. It's actually on the civil side, not on the criminal side. But we have really smart lawyers in our office who are um, taking federal data, federal Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, which is the military insurance. Yeah. And we're, we're mining that data to figure out who the statistical outliers are in terms of, pres- um, of prescribers, doctors, pharmacists, um, nurse practitioners, and figure out who are the statistical outliers so we can figure out who to target as who are um, basically distributing opioids. So you might see, for example, a pharmacy where they have a really high incident uh, rate of, of distributing or of prescribing a three-drug cocktail that has no purpose other than to give a high of, a, of an opioid, an antidepressant, and a muscle relaxant. Um, or you might have a pharmacy where the average patient, patient is, um, uh, is traveling in an ordinate distance to pick up their prescription. Why would that be? Um, so we're trying to use um, the sort of complex analysis to target and then and then conduct further investigations. And has that yielded anything yet? It's starting to. We have some ongoing investigations that I can't talk about, but okay. um, it is actually. Yeah, and we've targeted a number of, um, of, of pharmacies and prescribers who we think are um, violating. So what, the, what that allows us to do from the civil side is um, we can um, either file false claims act. The DEA can suspend their license. Health and Human Services can suspend their ability to seek Medicaid, Medicare reimbursement. Um, so while it's not a criminal penalty, it can be referred for criminal prosecution. But that's a higher standard. We can we can put them out of business. Presumably, a doctor could lose his or her license under this. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, before we go, and we have about a minute, you were nominated, as I said, by Donald Trump, who has arguably made immigration the key issue of his presidency. Uh, Denver, the largest city in your region, has declared itself to be a sanctuary city for immigrants. Uh, What's your approach in regards to immigration? Yeah, um, I I think there's a – people ask me a lot about that during the confirmation process. Probably that and marijuana were the things I was asked most about. Mm. Um, I think there's a misperception, though, about our role in the immigration process. It's actually fairly small. Um, 
as m- people may not know, um, when somebody enters the country illegally and they're caught, that's an uh, typically is a deportation proceeding conducted by ICE as an administrative matter, and they're deported. If they re-enter the country, then it becomes a felony under federal law, and um, we can certainly prosecute that case, but. Um, Typically, we only take those kinds of cases if the person has a prior felony conviction in the United States of a violent nature. So if it's somebody who, while they were here the first time, uh, was prosecuted for domestic violence or dealing drugs or gang activity, then we will go after those people and and, and um, charge them with uh, illegal reentry. So this, again, goes back to the priorities of terrorism and of violent crime. Jason Dunn, thanks for being with us. He's U.S. attorney in Colorado taking the job about eight months ago. He also works closely in this region with the FBI, Drug Enforcement Administration, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. History is littered with defunct record stores. Think Sam Goody, Tape World, Tower Records... But in Denver, Wax Tracks has survived. It's been around since the 1970s. CPR's Alexandra McMahon took a walk down memory lane with its owners, who've been running it for just over 40 years. Even moving to their current location is a story in and of itself. Well, let's so we start over here. We took over this building. When was it, Dwayne? We got into the corner store in 78. And then we got this space probably early 80s. It had been a woman who had a needle craft store. She was very nice, kind of an earth mother hippie. <laughs> and uh, one day a couple of guys, one of them chased the other one into the store here where she was at. They had a big fight. She was yelling and screaming. They ran back outside and one of them shot the other one in the alley right here. And she closed up about a week later, and then we took it over. So well, that kind of gives you an idea what the neighborhood might have been like in those days in '78. It's more of a shopping area now instead of a shooting each other area. <laughs> I'm Dave Stidman, co-owner of Wax Tracks Records. Been doing this for 40 years. <laughs> I'm Dwayne Davis, co-owner of Wax Tracks, and uh, yeah. 40 years. Dave and Dwayne are sitting in a very dark, cramped basement. The space is filled with boxes of overstock that they don't have room for upstairs. Dave mentions that in the early days, he used to live in the back room of the basement. That was, of course, after he and Dwayne decided to make a big career change. Dwayne and I used to work together at uh, Jefferson County Social Services. And he was my favorite guy there because he would talk about music which is like, that was my main interest in life. We were at the annual Jefferson County Juvenile Probation Chili and Beer Blowout uh, out in a park in Golden, and Dave and I had both had a couple of beers. Um, We were standing there, and Dave says, hey, let's get a record store. And I said, well, open another beer and let's do it, (laughs) you know. And a couple of months later, uh, indeed, Dave had uh, talked with uh, Jim and Danny, and uh, they liked him. They liked the way he knew music and the way he responded to music. We thought, well, 
this uh, this might be the right thing to do because uh, social services was a meat grinder job and we were getting tired of saving kids and decided we'd rather corrupt them. The two people Dwayne mentioned, Jim Nash and Danny Flesher, were the original owners of Wax Tracks. They opened the store in 1974, hoping to expose Denver to music it had never heard before. Then they decided to sell it four years later to launch the Wax Tracks record label. They were very knowledgeable about that music, and so that's what they carried. And they wanted, were hoping that we would kind of carry on that same tradition. Not only did the original owners leave behind a tradition of selling niche records, but they also left behind some famous regulars, like Jello Biafra, the former lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. And Jello Biafra is, has been a longtime friend and customer of the store since day one. He used to shop at Wax Tracks when it was the old owners, Jim and Danny. When they left, they, they told Dave that we were inheriting uh, $100 in new stock and Jello Biafra. <laughs> We, we sold all the stock, but we still got jello. In the basement, Dave and Dwayne point out various objects, relics of decades past, like an old cash register covered in stickers. Dwayne says despite its appearance, it is not the store's original register. The first register we had must have weighed 100 pounds, was about this much taller, but it got uh, taken out in the first car crash into wax tracks, uh, of which we've had numerous being on the corner of 13th and Washington. Aside from cars smashing through their store, taking out stock, business was good for Dave and Dwayne. Until it wasn't. At the turn of the century, we, we hit bottom. The age of CDs and the internet hit wax tracks hard. And then around 2003, we noticed a vague uptick in the sale of vinyl. And vinyl was supposed to be dead, and nobody was supposed to be carrying it, and we had never not had one store dedicated to vinyl. And the next year, well, it happened again, and we didn't have to borrow money. And by 2008, I would say that we started to get confident that that this wasn't just uh, an, an anomaly that had occurred and was going to disappear. And it's safe to say the vinyl boom isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Forbes reported that 2017 saw more than $700 million in vinyl record sales. And for wax tracks? After 40 years, there never seems to be a shortage of music lovers willing to spend the day sifting through endless record stacks. On a Saturday afternoon, pretty busy in here. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. Alexandra's report first aired in November, but Wax Tracks is the subject of a documentary that's now on digital platforms called Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks records. Over the years, some pretty weird stuff has come off those record stacks. We asked owners Dave Stidman and Dwayne Davis to pick some of the strangest songs they've run across. The first is locally grown and features the beat poet Allen Ginsberg. I understand he's backed by a Denver punk band? Yes, he is. A band called the Gluons. The Gluons? The microscopic uh, atomic particles. Okay. How in the heck does Allen Ginsberg front a punk song? 
Well, he was up at the Naropa Institute and uh, hooked up with Mike Chappelle, who was in that band, the Gluons, and they hit it off, and Mike wanted to put a single out, so he approached us, and we said, sure, why not? You had a record label, Waxtrax did at the time. Well, this was the first record that we ever put out, so it was an experiment that uh, went awry many times. (laughs) Bird brain runs the world. He could not sing. He had two voices, his Jewish whiner and the voice of God. And for Bird Brain, the song on this, he uses his Jewish whiner voice to very good effect. But he had no sense of timing, and Mike would have to stand like one foot in front of him and wave his hands to let him know when he had to come in for the uh, lyrics. Did this sell? Not real well. <laughs> Has it, uh, it become valuable now in the age of eBay, etc.? Well, not really. It, okay. It'll go for about 10 10 bucks. Yes. Okay, your next track is called Red Temple Prayer, Two-Headed Dog. Uh, who is this and why did you pick it? Dwayne, I think you picked it, but I, I love it as well. And it is... Uh, Rocky Erickson from the 13th Floor Elevators. The 13th Floor Elevators. Yes. Now, that was a 60s psychedelic band that had some great records. Unfortunately, Rocky did a little too much LSD, so he ended up in an insane asylum. And and this record is one after he got out. After he gets out of an asylum. Yes. And at that time, he was trying to uh, get a notary public to certify that he was being visited by aliens. He has a super great screaming voice. It's very effective in this kind of songs that he sings. Now, this one does have more value, I think, than the gluons. Yes, uh, I would think so. It, it sells probably $50 in the 50 neighborhood. Bucks. Yeah. This prompted me to Google two-headed dog. Mm. Don't do that. <laughs> well, the song lyrics draw on a uh, actual Soviet scientist experiments where they tried to put a dog's head on the neck of another living dog. Rocky was obsessed with this kind of imagery with zombies and aliens and all kinds of very strange things. Now, it is the music video to this next song, a track called Lightning Strikes, that I think is really remarkable. It's a cover by Klaus Nomi, who looks like something otherworldly to me. Well, he he was a, a German and much influenced by David Bowie and the whole uh, Spiders from Mars era uh, glam rock. How would and you describe his style? Mock opera. Mock opera. There are still people who come in the store and and love his music. Listen to me, baby. <laughs> 
Better than his music? Do you think that he was equally as talented a musician as he was a sort of esthete? Well, I, I'm sorry to say something that would offend his fans, but uh, almost anything would be better than his actual music talent, in, in my opinion. We chose this because it is fairly memorable. Uh, once you hear it, it's difficult to get it out of your ear. You describe your next selection as the ultimate room clearer for the party you want to end. There's not going to be much of a show after this, but uh, <laughs> what, what have you chosen? Well, the, the legendary Stardust Cowboy singing uh, or, or performing Paralyzed. Now, wait, you almost said singing and then you corrected yourself. Well, it's, it's not really singing. It's more sort of yelping. Yelping? Yes. This is from 1968. Yes. Now, I found the uh, first copy I ever had was I found in a thrift store. I used to dig around thrift stores looking for rockabilly singles. So I'd pick anything that's, and I had never heard the song, So, but I picked it because I thought it might be rockabilly. And so I got it home, tried it out, and I was surprised to hear what it was. I, I have to admit, I do find it enjoyable, but... Most of anyone else that I played have played it for uh, clears the room immediately and doesn't want to hear any more. Thank you uh, for trying, but that's that's not uh, that's awful. What could you possibly find to like about this? I think the oddity of it and the uniqueness. You know, I don't like common rock very much. But that was a record that uh, was, I've never heard anything like it. She's like the anti-James Taylor. Possibly, yes. I would, I don't think James <laughs> would do a song like that, no. Thanks for being with us, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you for introducing these records to the public. <laughs> Dave Stidman and Dwayne Davis own Wax Tracks Records in Denver. They shared some of their most unusual musical discoveries. We spoke in November. A documentary about the store called Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records, is now available on digital platforms. Thanks for spending time with Colorado Matters today. We would not exist if it weren't for listener members. This is CPR News. <laughs>